everybody. Welcome to another episode of History Unloaded with Ashley and Danny. And today we have one more. Ashley, who's our guest? Marley. Oh, not Marley. Marley oh. is technically always with us in spirit. <laughs> that, that, is, that is super true. Our guest is Alex McKenzie, who um, is known as someone who has an awesome beard, but he's also the curator of Springfield Armory National Historic Site. Did I get that right? Yes. Okay, cool. It's a, it's a long name. Hey, it's all right. It's mine. It's cool. I like it. Barn. <laughs> I don't know. I always, every time I try to tag you guys on Instagram, it's really hard to like find you. Yeah. I always tag the other Springfield Armory. I know, and so do a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they love it. You guys, not so much. Well, no. I mean, there's there's a... There's mutual benefit, I think. Yeah. Um, Do you get free XD pistols? No, not at all. But uh, uh, we get a lot of calls for uh, uh, for catalogs, parts, service, what have you. But uh, but you know, we uh, we grab the people as they come in and tell them a little bit about our place too, and then send them on their on their way to Illinois. <laughs> that's that's kind of like when we talked about Danny, like how people come into our museum and like with the M1 carbine episode where like they get really pissed that like we don't have like a specific like Rockola, well we do now, but you know, like, you know, right. National Postal Meter M1 carbine and we'll be like, but we have all of the prototypes in the first production one and people are like, nah, it's not what I wanted. So. It's not what I wanted. I want to see something <laughs> are people, way more boring. Like, nicer at your place? <laughs> Oh wait, we have a like we have a new series that we're doing, and the reason that Alex is here, Danny. Oh yeah, so the name of our new segment, five minutes into this conversation, uh, not that many, um, is people smarter than us. And so the reason we went to Alex as our first guest for this new series is because he is curator at Springfield Armory, and he's been been there for a little while now, and uh, is one of our very esteemed colleagues in the gun museum world. So uh, it's always fun to pick his brain, and we enjoy hanging out with him when we get the chance. So. We thought he'd be a good first guest. Cool. Was that a good enough segment synopsis? That was that was really good. I think you know it's. We should probably point out like you know how how in the world are there people smarter than us, Danny? Um, it's really not that hard. It's um, not. It's not at it's all. A, it's a low barrier. Um, we got talking about ways we could like other things we could do with the podcast, and uh, we've met a lot of really cool people in the museum world and in the industry, and. Um, Alex was one of the, I think one of the first people we talked to when we were hosting our symposium series, which we haven't talked about on the podcast, um, but uh, so it doesn't exist. So it does not exist. Uh, but we talked to Alex and he was one of the first to get involved and sign up for our symposium uh, and became a speaker and became um, a participant in that and will hopefully be a future host of the symposium. And um, I lost my train of thought. Um, it's okay. I was bored too. Hey, Alex, <laughs> why are you smarter than us? Uh, I'm, I'm not, but I'm flattered. Thank you guys for having me. And, uh, um, and yeah, I was, uh, that's a good question. How long have we been uh, uh, knowing each other? It's been a while. Um, uh, like four years, maybe? Yeah, at least. At least. Were you at the Aspen Institute thing? No, that sounds too fancy. Okay. Never mind. <laughs> like four years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What I'm about to say is going to sound creepy, but I'm going to say it anyways. I actually knew of Alex through another coworker who claims that you emulated his beard 
after a conference in Philadelphia. So this one's for Zach. And um, I knew of a curator at Springfield uh, before I had actually met you by a few years. So basically, Danny, I think the moral of the story is you like stalk everybody before you meet them because you had seen my documentary too. That's a fact. It is a fact. Also, another little fun tangent story before we let Alex actually talk. Yeah. Uh, Camila's just shaking her head. <laughs> is um, Alex was at the Winchester Arms Collectors Association show. And um, Danny, tell me if I'm telling this story wrong. So that's a big whack a gun show. It's in Cody in July every year. It was our first symposium. Danny's mother was like trying to, I don't know, like hook, no, hook this something is, up. People that know my parents were like knew that I was out here and also attended the Wacka show. And there was something like they wanted to introduce me to a niece or something. Yeah. They and wanted to get hook Danny up. It was their, pre, pre married Danny. Their knowledge of me that I, was that I was from West Virginia. I'm not, but that was their knowledge of me. <laughs> and they saw Alex who was, I believe wearing like a baseball hat and like, just like a, pretty normal flannel shirt like kind of like right now and had a still has the same beard or a very similar beard and um they assumed he was danny from west virginia and tried to make their, an introduction their exact words were oh yeah he looks like he's from west virginia <laughs> <laughs> and we and we all just stopped and was like what's happening and you were like oh i think i understand <laughs> like danny was like i think i got this <laughs> And we were all together when this happened. So we're like, we're standing in a group in this office. It was, it was really funny. But um, Alex, why don't you tell us a little bit about like who you are, what's your background before we get into nerdy Springfield Armory stuff? Sure. Maybe where you're from that's not West Virginia. That's not West Virginia. Maybe it is. You are. All right. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah. From Massachusetts, of all things, actually, when we get calls for uh, Springfield Armory um, and we tell them we're in Massachusetts, it's kind of a surprise sometimes to people. Um, but uh, um, but yeah, I am from uh, Massachusetts and born and raised. And um, uh, very shortly after <laughs> I was born and raised, I started working at Springfield Armory National Historic Site. Um, and so doing all sorts of stuff and been uh, lucky enough to work my way into the curator position there uh, and really devoting to uh, uh, take care of the collections and because uh, it's an awesome uh, collection and uh, it's uh, kind of a blessing to uh, be a part of it uh, and to have been a part of it for so long and to have all these opportunities to talk more about it, learn more about it, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, tell more people about it because Springfield Armory is awesome. So in the previous podcast, we talked about like how to become Danny and I, which is like, terrifying. Um, so I actually don't know if I like fully know this or if I knew this at some point, like I'm a great friend to the podcast audience. Danny knows I only half listen. Like what's your like educational background? Like exactly like how did you get to be curator of Springfield Armory? Because I, I'm intrigued. Well, personally, I, I want to know because I feel like I don't actually really know how you got here. And I think it's interesting to kind of like ask people that are also in similar positions to us, like how they got there so that people can see there's only one way or there's many ways to eat a Reese's. Yeah, uh, for me, I mean, there's kind of a dual aspect to it. Uh, one is uh the museum field and working in a museum the other is working for the national park service 
um, which are kind of two different beasts uh, and uh, where it comes together in certain parks. I mean, you know, National Park Service is an awesome agency uh, and uh, quite a varied agency where, you know, your big groups are parks that are uh, natural resources and, you know, that's your Yellowstones and Yosemites and what they call the, the capital P parks. Um, and, uh, and then there are your cultural parks, uh, where it's more history focused and things like that. And, uh, uh, so you kind of tend to get it, getting into the park service is, uh, not easy, um, in general. And, uh, a lot of that has to do with, uh, that it's a government agency and, you know, the, the numbers are shrinking, they're going down. Um, but, uh, uh, but the park service is a wonderful thing to do. And the best way to get your foot in the door with them is the way that I did it, uh, which is volunteering, uh, and, uh, getting in there, getting to know the people at a park you want to work at, or, you know, whether that's the armory or whether that's Gettysburg or Golden Gate or, uh, you know. Palo Alto or wherever. Um, there are more than four. What's in Palo Alto? Uh, Palo Alto, Texas. Uh, it's uh, one of the Mexican uh, War uh, battles. Um, I thought like you were talking about California and I was like, Silicon Valley is right. now a national park. And <laughs> hey, we're not too far off. It might just happen, you know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really about, uh, volunteering interns. That's how I got in, uh, at Springfield when I was, uh, 18. Um, paid or unpaid intern? Uh, mostly unpaid. Okay. Um, that was another part of our topic of conversation. Yeah. Uh, so I was an undergrad, um, you know, and I was history geek from birth. So I, uh, I was never like undeclared in college or anything. And I just had to get some credits and ended up, uh, working out an internship deal there. Um, and, uh, uh, never left. Uh, so, and eventually, you know, I, I, I jokingly tell people I, um, I just hung out until they started paying me. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of how it works. <laughs> um, so there's a little bit of truth there. Uh, and certainly, you know, being known, you know, busting your butt as a volunteer and as an intern and, and when those opportunities are there and you're present for them. Uh, you can uh, get your foot in the door. I think that's true of a lot of places, certainly. Um, and it's true of the Park Service. Uh, but uh, Springfield Armory had the benefit of, uh, um, you know, really being into the history, really being into uh, collections care. Uh, while I was uh, interning, I was still going through bachelor's and uh, master's degree program and uh, uh, really learning about the ins and outs of uh, uh, archives in particular, uh, which is one thing I really do like, uh, getting into the documents and photos and things like that. Um, but then, uh, you know, all of that is an opportunity to study the history. So um, when it came time to, um, you know, uh, get a position or a position opened up to take care of the collections, yeah, I was and for those of you who don't know, Alex is young. So like the answer to how do you become the curator of Springfield Armory is you will never be, maybe your children have a chance. Eh, you never know. You never oh, know. <laughs> uh oh, Alex, are you taking Danny's curator position in Cody? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Danny's like, I don't like this podcast anymore. I, uh, I didn't, I'm, 
I'm uncertain what to do. <laughs> I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Danny, ask a nerd question. Oh, um, I feel like I've got two. Like, so for those of you who don't like, well, obviously, a lot of you don't know Alex is like Danny and Alex are like spirit animal similar in their nerd levels. And then hopefully you'll meet one day the curator Colonial Williamsburg and like he and I are like spirit animals. So there's like two types of gun curator. <laughs> just two. Just just two. Um, so well, we'll lead off with the one we talked about slightly before we hopped on this podcast uh is an m15 a real thing yes thank you you're welcome care to elaborate (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um yes there is there is something in between the m14 and the m16 for uh military shoulder arms uh for those who are uh familiar with those and a lot of folks are um the M14, of course, developed at uh, Springfield Armory and a, uh, as a evolution, uh, although not really directly related, but close uh, to the uh, M1 rifle, um, where the M14 is a select fire, uh, box-fed, uh, box-magazine-fed uh, rifle uh, in 7.62 millimeter. And one of the things that the armory was looking at at the same time is a way to get a squad automatic. And uh, pretty much they looked at all sorts of options, including what was existing then at that point, which is our BAR. Uh, And they basically wanted to turn an M14 into a BAR. Um, So they made a heavy barrel version of the M14. and uh, put a bipod on the front of it and uh, beefed up the stock a little bit and uh, made it very heavy and unwieldy and called it officially uh, M15 as a, uh, um, you know, a way to have suppressing fire, high sustained fire rate um, off of a M14 platform. Uh, of course, uh, they were also working on the M60 uh, which is uh, uh, belt-fed and uh, a lot better at sustained fire than a uh, 20-round box magazine-fed uh, uh, rifle. So the M15 was really only a thing for about six months or something like that before they realized, hey, this is pretty much immediately obsolete. And so um, the M15 really didn't, uh, didn't take off. Um, yeah, technically, I mean, they're related in that the, the, the test designation for an M14 was a T44E4, um, and uh, the M15 was a T44E5 or E6. Damn it, now I can't remember. It's one of those. But either way, they were both kind of developmental, and they both got officially designated, you know, because you go from a T series when they're experimental, and then when they officially get adopted, they become uh, the M series. Um, and so you had an M14 and M15, and then the M15 goes away. And then shortly after, of course, comes the M16. But, uh, but there you have it, folks. Letters now. You heard it here first. Yeah. There is an M15. Actually, you probably didn't hear it. Her, hear it <laughs> you probably heard it somewhere else. Probably heard it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know who's listening to our podcast. Uh, like 
two dudes in Germany, I think, because we get a bunch and of And then one guy at Shotshow that wants you fired. Yeah, and somebody at Shotshow that wants me fired. Come on. And, uh, it's because Danny thinks that Gatling gun is a machine gun. Actually, we have to ask Alex that question. Oh, uh, Danny. Is the Gatling gun a machine gun? No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> poor danny like we have a a text group with with alex and the curator colonial williamsburg and danny was also on this um kick uh a while ago that the civil war rifled muskets were actually just rifles and you and when we asked them alex and and eric about it they you gave almost the same like sounding answer through text message to danny so danny you like you keep striking out I want to explain both of my positions here for those who have not heard it already. I say that while we wouldn't necessarily consider it to function like a modern machine gun for practical aspects and usage, it was a machine gun in the 1800s. I also say my argument for the the bump stock band 61 Springfield is that tech is actually the opposite argument that Technically speaking, it's really just a rifle, but in usage, it is a rifle musket. Okay. So I am playing both sides of the argument, and I have no problem with that logical inconsistency. (laughs) So good. (laughs) I don't know what to say. I, right there isn't anything to say Danny just Danny loves to like profess something and die on that hill like and then move on and, and forget about it but he also like really like he knows he's gonna lose the argument too so like I feel like you're just stubborn and you are like the definitions of devil's advocate somebody's gotta be yeah Do they? you and Satan man <laughs> okay maybe fair point <laughs> I mean, I'm all up for debate and argument. It's kind of cool to to really, you know, uh, it's fun going back and forth about what is a thing, and you know. Not. Yeah, it's true. So therefore, Ooh, but what happens what? when Richard Gatling himself hooked up a motor to an original Gatling gun in like the 1890s? Was that a machine gun? Well, you know what happened? It was too late for him to have invented it. Too late. Yeah, because Maxim's was in the 1880s. Oh, okay. So Maxim ended all debate. <laughs> What's that? Or excuse me, William Canello. Ooh, Cantello. Cantello, sorry. I think it was Cantello. Do you know this story, Alex? I don't know if I do. Oh, that, hey, look, there's one thing we know more than Alex. Uh-huh. <laughs> told you you weren't smarter than me. Oh, wait a this minute. A great that, did I the just say that backwards? What? I told you I'm not. I wasn't listening. I told you I'm not smarter than you. That's what I meant. Oh, there we go. Jesus. So, but like to be fair, Alex, we only know this because we like we're looking at the inventor of the machine gun, and we got into a weird. This was also tied in with the whole Gatling gun Maxim thing. But um, so there's a weird conspiracy theory that there was a guy named William Cantello, who was Hiram Stevens Maxim, like before. He became Hiram Stevens Maxim and he had this family and that he invented the machine gun, like something pre-Maxim. And then he just like up and left and, you know, changed his name and started a new life and, you know, built the Maxim machine gun. And then there's a true story and like the ancestors are still around um, of these, like the the sons of William Cantello went and found Maxim because they're like, 
this is my dad. And then they went to the train station, a train station where Maxim was. And they were like, dad. And he like turned around and looked at them and like got on the train. <laughs> this is an actual story. Jonathan Ferguson, who we also have to have on this podcast, who's the curator of Royal Armories, or the keeper of arms and armor. Uh, he actually did a British news interview about this um, with the family involved and everything. So there's validity to the story. Well, there's validity validity in that it is a story, but like the dates yes. don't line up at all for actual True. parentage. But also back to talking about Springfield Armory. <laughs> I told you, Alex, we were we no, literally this is awesome. Um, can you talk about um, so like the the production side of Springfield Armory? So we've talked about like interchangeability of parts in terms of like John Hall and Eli Whitney <laughs> Senior and. Um, and Sam Colt, but you guys have a pretty cool device there that we almost never talk about, but should probably talk about when we talk about interchangeability and mass production-ish. Yeah. Um, the uh, um, One of the crown jewels in the collection is uh, uh, Blanchard Lathe, um, which went on the line at Springfield Armory in about uh, 1822 or so, early 1820s. Um, but basically Th Thomas Blanchard, uh, started making a bunch of machines to start to mechanize the process of, uh, stock making. So they're all woodworking machines. Um, so up to that point where the stocks were largely made by hand, um, the, uh, uh, Blanchard had invented a series of machines actually that, that performed multiple steps in the stock making process. Uh, and the most uh, revolutionary of which was what's in the museum today, which is what he called a half stocking machine. Basically, it shaped the butt end of the stock uh, from about the halfway point back through the butt. And then, uh, um, and so that was revolutionary as a, in a bigger picture, because that was the first machine ever to be able to duplicate irregular shapes um as opposed to you know if you think of something that is isn't so irregular like a table leg or a candlestick or a baseball bat or something like that um the uh something that could copy uh oddly shaped things was uh pretty darn cool uh and so uh that's kind of one in a long line of interesting uh things that the the government did back in the day in terms of uh subsidizing uh, smart dudes um, <laughs> and uh, recognizing that uh, hey there's talent here that uh, we need to nurture and, and give them an opportunity to develop their ideas and so Thomas Blanchard wasn't actually a armory employee he was a contractor for the government uh, same exact uh, uh, way that John Hall uh, was a contractor for the government uh, and both of whom got set up with space and resources and uh, time to be able to develop their concepts. Uh, where Thomas Blanchard was at Springfield Armory, um, John Hall was at uh, Harper's Ferry. And of course, Harper's Ferry, uh, um, well, John didn't want to go to Harper's Ferry. He wanted to come to Springfield because that was the cool place. Uh, but they <laughs> said, no, you're going to Harper's Ferry. Um, so I have a question since we're talking a lot about the employee, the people that worked at the armory, 
I find this to be kind of true for when I look into like Winchester history, because obviously the CFM has the Winchester collection. So we do a lot of Winchester history and like, I find myself getting weirdly attached to the stories of the people that work there because you end up researching similar people or the same people like over and over again. And you learn more and more about them each time. And then you learn even some obscure people, you know, just the name of somebody that was on the line who happened to be in the photo they took that day. Do you find yourself, maybe I sound creepy, but do you find yourself getting like almost, I, I don't know if attached is the right word, but to like the people that worked at Springfield? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's where the interesting things are. Um, where, uh, you know, around the armory, we, we say that we learn something new every day. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. true. Because uh, there's so many little details about Springfield Armory and how it worked and what happened there and who is doing what. And those stories are all the people, um, you know. And, uh, and it's just fascinating to kind of dig into uh, different aspects and learn about who they were. I mean, you look at a musket or... Um, or a rifle or something like that. And you could see the people in there if you look really hard. And that's one thing I love about uh, taking care of the collection. And, uh, you know, whether it's just their marks because they put their initials on it as part of the manufacturing process or, uh, or even symbols or, um, you know, uh, or even just the, the, the tool marks themselves. I mean, you know, you look at the inside of a receiver and you see those, you know, the, the marks from the milling machine or, or whatever. I mean, you know, you're thinking about the person that was operating that machine. Um, and it's, uh, it's pretty cool uh, to think about that. And to think about, you know, how uh, all those people came together uh, and uh, uh, did their thing, um, particularly when it got really large and complicated, like during World War II or something like that. Um, where they had to get organized uh, and uh, uh, deal in a large volume, but still, uh, the, the the stories of those people are, uh, you know, I mean, it's true of any place, but for me, Springfield Armory is is the people, and you know, and it's their story, um, and uh, uh, so it's uh, I'm, I'm totally with you. The the people are awesome and those stories are awesome to dig out and find out more about and and you're right you get to know some of these people you get to know them and, and who they were and what they were doing and it's uh super cool so follow-up question to that line do you have a favorite like is there somebody in particular that you like really like to learn about or really have like identified with or is there just like some story that survives off the production line about like some cantankerous stock maker that kept doing things his own way for 40 years or something like that? <laughs> uh, that's a tough question. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many cool stories, um, out there. Um, you know, you, uh, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to think of, uh, some, uh, right now. Uh, one is, uh, um, like in the 1820s, instead of uh, inspection, like initial inspection marks, the the armories uh, workers would use Masonic symbols. Um, on the that's pretty badass. Yeah, 
Uh, and they were all Masons. Actually, the superintendent of the armory at the time brought Freemasonry to Springfield and started the uh, the local Mason chapter, which is still growing. Um, and uh, but for a time in about the 1820s or so, um, they individual inspectors. We don't exactly know who. Uh, um, and there was a uh, uh, researcher who dug into it and tried to find out. Um, and uh, but. Uh, but it's neat that they, you know, instead of using A, B, or whatever for their inspection mark, they were using the all-seeing eye or the square compasses or something like that on the inside of the uh, lock mechanism. So they were never in a place where you could see it on the outside, but opening it up on the inside, uh, there were these guys kind of putting their the symbols of this fraternity they were a part of uh, on the uh, inside of the, it's kind of an inside nod you know that's super cool i didn't know that so what you're saying is we need to go upstairs and pull apart every springfield lock that is on display (laughs) yup danny road trip come on over oh i just meant like in the cfm because we have a oh appropriate well road trip for me because i'm in arizona (laughs) 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 oh my gosh well i think we've been talking for a while haven't we we have been well then Last question. Anything else you want to say? <laughs> <laughs> We're so good at this. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, uh, uh, definitely for, for folks listening, uh, Springfield Armory is awesome. Uh, I love it. And please reach out. A lot of people think that, uh, you know, we're too busy to answer questions or chat or geek out or nerd out. I wish people thought that of um, our museum. <laughs> and uh please you know reach out say hi come on over and uh um we'll geek out together and we'll uh talk about cool stuff and because uh, there's tons to talk about um uh, just with springfield armory um and you guys have an instagram and a facebook yeah our instagram really isn't the thing. facebook is is more where more our speed and Alex and this other person he works with did a video once and it got so many views and Danny and I were like, we've been doing this for years and we get like 500 views. It was we very had sad. been doing Facebook lives for a while and like could never break any kind of serious engagement. And you guys and had like you guys showed up with like beards and beards a can of 1911s and crushed it. Yeah I, yeah, I wish I could say that was anything other than dumb luck, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> We are extremely jealous to this day. Yep, we are still jealous. So jealous we made our friend Jesse made us beards. Mm-hmm. Oh, was that? Did Jesse make those? Yeah, <laughs> Jesse made the beards. I didn't know that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Alex, for being our guinea pig on bringing somebody else onto the podcast to ramble with us. And uh, my dog just woke up. So that's, that's good news. Hooray. Um, yeah, so this was our first experiment into having a guest. I think we could probably talk a lot more about Springfield and oh, yeah. do a part two. Oh yeah, so we'll two. have to have you back on. Yeah. Um, and to reiterate what Alex said about uh, the armory, it is one of the cooler places to visit, I think, in the US. So if you're on it's the awesome. East Coast or anywhere within like a 20 hour drive, go do it. That's what I'll say about it. Sweet. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> so thanks for listening, y'all. We'll uh, talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.